This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Sean Agnew. Uh, today is September 23rd, 2013. We're conducting this interview at the beautiful offices of R5 Productions here in Center City, Philadelphia. And this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hi, Sean. Hello. Uh, so I guess why don't we start with, why don't you tell me where you were born and when? Okay, I was born in Ardmore, Pennsylvania in 1977. Yeah, right. And what was Ardmore like, you know, when you were a kid? When, I guess the sort of the time that I remember the most is when I was probably like, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, right around there. And um, ended up getting into uh, skateboarding and music. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a cool local skate shop called Cool Runnings, which was owned by a former PAL skater uh, named Jamie Godfrey. Mm -hmm. um, and... I mean, I don't think, I think that's right around the time that skateboarding kind of exploded and started getting popular, um, where they would have, like, the weird kind of cheap brands at Kitty City and stuff like that. So this would be late 80s? Yeah, probably. exactly. Yeah. This is probably literally 1987 or so. Mm -hmm. So started going to, like, the local cool runnings and, like, I don't know, buying skate stickers and eventually saving up enough money to buy a skateboard. My next door neighbor across the street had a little quarter pipe. Um, so started getting really involved in the skating. Um kind of bowed out when everyone around me figured out how to do an ollie uh -huh. and then I was just still <laughs> like on the right yeah exactly so didn't didn't end up faring too well on the skate stuff um and kind of bowed out and then got more um into playing basketball and there was a lot of local basketball courts in Ardmore uh so yeah that and then also remember being in around again like 10 11 12 and being like really, really into hip hop. I'm not sure how that came about, whether it was like, through my neighborhood or what, but obsessively into hip hop. And me and my classmates would just buy records and we'd look at the thanks list. And for some reason, we'd you know, like write all the names down of uh -huh. like who was thanked. Almost like you would hear it like now in punks, and you're like, oh wait, who, who's this band in a punk 7-inch? Yeah, or we'd yeah, be like, like who's, who's this guy? And there's no internet band or anything like that, but we'd just like write down the names like, what, who's King T? And then kind of like look around in a Sam Goody or like The Wall or some record store like that where we're trying to find, um, you know, new hip hop stuff like that. And I remember in eighth grade, we want, me and two friends wanted to do uh, Fight the Power, like, you know, lip sync it for a talent show. And we weren't allowed to. And in my eighth grade yearbook, I had a photo of, uh, what's that? I think Ice Cube. And they, they wouldn't let me put that in there either. It was edited out. It was like too controversial. So you couldn't do the performance because there were, <laughs> there were bad words in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not, Fight the Power only has like, it has um, already a bleep in it, the part when they say motherfuck him and John oh, Wayne. John Wayne yeah. yeah, but it's bleep in the normal version. But I think that the eighth grade talent of uh, St. Coleman John Newman wasn't, wasn't ready for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what was the community like or the neighborhood that you were growing up in, like Ardmore? So it was predominantly, uh, I grew, grew up in a... Um, what do they call it? It was like a, a twin when the two houses are connected. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the house next to ours was actually my grandmother, and that was the house uh, that my mom was born in. So my mom essentially lived in like the same plot of land for 50-plus years, which I thought was pretty crazy. Yeah. But uh, the, the neighborhood was um, mostly, uh, at least in the immediate area, mostly African-American, very working class, um, small house. We only had one bathroom. Uh, the yard was maybe, you know, like five by seven or, you know, pretty small, but it also wasn't like scary or, you know, horrible or anything. Like that. It was a pretty like, like 
it wasn't technically Delaware County, but it was it's kind of like what everyone imagines when you say like Delco, Delco like yeah, yeah, like yeah. Habertown, mm-hmm. Upper Darby, kind of like that. Right. Okay. So how then did punk wind up coming into your life? So when I was uh, around 16, uh, I started working at the Marion Cricket Club, which was a, uh, a super fancy um, sort of country club that specialized in tennis and cricket. Uh, like the, the richest of the rich, lots of old money, everyone was dying, Jaguars in the parking lot, <laughs> uh, that sort of place. And how, how did it feel, I mean, to interrupt you for a second, but how did it feel like coming from a working class community then being around these like super rich I think, people? I think at 15 or 16, it was like I knew, like, I was like ugh, these people are like the worst. Uh, there's, all, there's, all, there's generally, not, I guess it was with people in general too, like there's super nice people and then there were super mean people. But the majority of the of the members were super mean, but there was always the super nice ones and the ones that would have fun and, you know, joke around. So there wasn't too much animosity. It wasn't like, fuck these yeah, people, yeah. I'm gonna burn their cars down or anything like that. I guess I if someone gives you a nice tip every now and again, yeah, it kind of helps. Yeah, I was 16, I was just like, oh, let's, like, I was at that point probably, you know, I was making maybe like seven or eight dollars an hour uh, back then. So when I was 16, I was just like, had a ton of money. I was able to buy a computer, so I was pretty pretty happy, sixteen year old. But um, that was the place where actually my grandfather worked too, uh, where you know he lived in the same plot, you know, next door to our house mm-hmm. forever. But he was a groundskeeper there, and I know that, or at least from what I was told, that he had issues and actually like walked out twice from the people just being like rude or awful to him. And he's like, you know what, I don't, yeah. I don't care. I'll just I'll just leave. At 16, I didn't really have like a, you know anything to support aside from like I don't know what I spent my baseball cards or basketball cards yeah. or something. So it, it wasn't too big of an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, okay. how the pop- oh yeah, sorry. So then, uh, so working, started working there, and there was these older waiters and busboys there who um, just thought it was funny and interesting, and I don't know how exactly, but they basically started um, passing along CDs to me, being like. Hey, you should check out this group, Black Flag, or yeah. you know, like the super general basics of punk, like Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, yeah. and Minor Threat, all that stuff. Bad Brains. Um, so he passed it to me, and I would listen to it. I'd be like, oh, like, I don't know, this, st- this stuff's kind of weird, and like, I don't know if I like it. I'm still listening to rap music, um, but after a while, it started kind of getting into it, catching on a little bit. Then they would, you know, be like, Hey, you should check out this radio station, WKDU 91.7. Um, if they play cool stuff, so I started listening to the radio station and being like, started getting more into it, then almost in a backwards way, then I started watching like 120 minutes on MTV, mm-hmm. which, thinks, which is weird to go from like a super indie college station to 120 minutes, but kind of just started getting more and more involved in it and started becoming more aware where at the high school I was going to, there was definitely like, uh, like the weird kids that um, then all of a sudden I started being like, oh, hey, like I know who... Operation Ivy is now, or you know, like kind of yeah. realizing what things, or they're where they were talking about going to shows at City Gardens. I'd be like, oh yeah, I, I, I heard about that place. Like I know what, where that is. Were you moving along with a more popular crowd than those weird people? At I wasn't. That time? No, I was moving in like almost like no crowd, where I was just kind of like my own, like sort of like very uh, middle, like middle of the road. Like didn't go out really with it. Didn't hang out with almost anyone from high school. In fact, definitely didn't. By the end of freshman year, I like, had no friends I would hang out with. And awkwardly, like, I would like, babysit my, my friends, like little brothers and stuff like that. And they would go out like drinking in the woods. And I was like, ugh. <laughs> so I wasn't drinking or doing anything like that. I was straight edge, but didn't know that yeah. I was straight edge. You know? right. So there was like a very, uh, basically just hung out with like uh, 
people, older people from my work, which were the punk guys, and then people that played basketball, and just basically worked and played basketball like that whole time, and then just slowly started becoming more and more aware of like the cooler things that were that were happening, or like hear stories about like this venue, the Trocadero, and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, is there, were you going into the city of Philadelphia at so that time? I was. I was going into the city not to. I was actually going there to buy um, records and CDs specifically from uh, like the people that sell bootleg records and CDs under the, the app. Actually, you want to close the door because now you're on the yeah, Sorry. Okay. Okay. Let me interrupt. The, uh, but I was going into the city at that point to actually buy records and to bring it back a little bit. My parents, one thing I'll give them like the most credit for was that when I was 13 or 14, um, or actually younger, 12 and 13, they were made it very aware to me, like, hey, you live in New York City, and there's things to do there, and we're going to teach you how to get there. So I would take the R5 train, um, where you, this is obviously where I got the name, or not obviously, but that's where I got my name. Yeah. Uh, took the R5 train to the city, uh, and they kind of gave me, like, a, a radius, like, you're allowed to go, like, here. It was mm -hmm. basically, like, the gallery, which was at 8th and Market to South Street. And, right. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. So I was just going there to shop, not hang out or do anything like that. But I think the first time I hung out in the city, I was a senior, and my high school's basketball team was in the city Catholic League finals. So I went to go see the game down there in West Philly. Mm -hmm. So did you start to, to become aware of shows happening in Philadelphia? No. Like, so like, I'm totally not aware of shows or anything like that. Um, didn't get aware of that until I started going to Drexel. So I guess to bring it back then, started listening to KDU, kind of was aware of that something was happening in the city, but I just didn't know like what, where, and how. And then uh, I became, uh, ended up going to Drexel, already listened to WKDU, so I was like, oh, you know, immediately joined the radio station. Um, About what year is this? This is 1995. Okay. So I joined the radio station in 1995, and then um, immediately like meet like a bunch of weirdo punks, like noise people, people playing jungle music, um, and just felt you know, really excited. I was pretty, um, really interested in it. Um, they seemed to be like a cool group of people. Uh, and then just started basically like going down there on my own a lot more often, talking to people, becoming friends with people. And then from there, that's how I started finding out about shows and music. And what were the early shows that you were going to or the venues where you were seeing the bands so play? I went to, I can remember specifically like the first like punk show where, so th early on it, uh, Early on Drexel, I became aware of like the truck and uh, went to a couple shows there. But I remember the first like punk show. It was a warehouse in North Philadelphia called Milk Boy, which has nothing to do with the coffee shop now or anything mm -hmm. like that. But that was on somewhere. I, I don't even remember where, but I think I want to say like North 2nd Street. It was with Code 13, The Boils, and someone else. And I went with... Um, my good friend at the station at the time, John Paul, his friend Mike McKee, right. and a bunch of other guys that I ended up becoming like really good friends with, um, and just went with them. And I remember like going into the venue and just being like, "Holy fucking shit! This is like a scary, dirty, filthy warehouse." Yeah, I, well, I think there'd be a lot of scary, dirty people, or at yeah. least dirty, maybe not necessarily scary at yeah. that show because yeah. it's very, you know, kind of. And this, yeah, exactly. 1995. It, it's like super fucked up. Like it looks like it's about to fall apart. Uh -huh. um, but I was just having a previous. Um, my previous show background was just like Trocadero, big stage, black, you know, lights, black room, flashing on and off, loud sound. 
this was to sort of totally something different where it was a room where it was like there was no stage or if there was it was maybe six inches yeah. the bands were behind the merch table you can go right up like hit the singer if you wanted to hang out lots of people were having fun there was an obvious sense of community there so after that show I became like way way interested and it was really excited I was like oh man like this is something that you know I'd like to to learn more but not necessarily learn more about but like get involved start hanging out this is something I want to do and then throughout that process then basically started like when's the next show when's the next show when's this when's that and then over time just started um, kind of like helping out here and there and just becoming more involved as time went on it seems like it wasn't that long of a time between when you first started going to those shows to when you started doing shows yeah uh, so, so what happened I mean how did you wind up yeah, so I became, um, so I, I was friends with the WKDU guys or the Drexel guys and through them met um, a bunch of the people who were setting up the shows at that time and um, just sort of by hanging out with them, they'd be like, hey, do you want to work the door? You know, which was taking money, stamping a hand. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, I was like, hey, do you want to like, help set up the PA? So I learned how to, you know, plug, at that time it was like a little tiny mixing board. It was just like for the vocals, but you plug a microphone in the channel, turn it up, like, mm -hmm. that, you know, here's the PA. Um, so just started kind of following around and hanging out, people doing doing their shows. And then uh, eventually I was like, hey, you know, I really like this. I think I'm going to do my own shows. So I started reaching out to, you know, local bands and then also bands that um, were kind of area bands and just writing them, you know, uh, or calling them actually, being like, hey, if you ever want to play Philadelphia, let me know. I can set up shows, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so and were you calling yourself R5 from the very no, beginning? No, no, yeah. So actually the first, I guess to go, the first show I ever got involved with was, I was also um, into ska music and had like a ska radio show on KDU. And there was two or three bands I wanted to see that weren't, um, that weren't playing, actually this is pretty important, that weren't playing any venues. So... I had the ska radio show at KDU, became friends with a lot of local ska bands, and had a relationship with one guy named Doug, who was in a band called Ruder Than You, and um, reached out to him, and I was just like, hey, there's these two or three bands that I want to bring to town. I think it could do well. The, uh, like, could you help me organize it, or like, let's put it together, or whatever. Let's, let's move forward with this. So uh, we called back back and forth, eventually worked out details, got in touch with the bands. I think he actually was the one that reached out to the bands. But we ended up putting the show together. Do you remember what bands? It was Ruder Than You, a band called Stinkfish, who eventually changed their name to Siren Six, a band from Connecticut called Black Strain Jack, no, shit, uh, Spring Hill Jack, and a band from England, like a reggae band called Zion Train. So, and Ruder Than You played. So Doug from Ruder Than You had it set up that was going to be at the TLA, uh, which is on South Street. It's like, a, at that time, probably, yeah, it was an 800 capacity venue. Um, tickets go on sale. I have nothing to do with, like, the organization, but I was helping promote it, made flyers, put them around town, promoted on my ska radio show. There's other ska radio shows at the time. They were promoting it. Um, so we were just doing our best, like, to get word out. At that point, um, there was like an emerging internet, so like alt.music.ska, right, using yeah. music groups, posting on there, basically doing all the, the things you would do to promote a show at that time. Uh, and then it ended up doing really well, and tickets were like moving super fast, um, so fast that they were like, hey, this is a great lineup, everything's 
moving fast, we should move it to our new menu or venue, the Electric Factory, which is this big, you know, 2,500 capacity venue. Uh, so uh, after I think like seven or 800 tickets sold right away, it gets moved to the Electric Factory. Um, start promoting the show at the Electric Factory. Everything's great. There's like 1,200 pre-sales, 1,300 pre-sales. It looks like it's going to be a big night. Um, so I remember going to the venue being like, yes, like I had a big hand in helping put on this night. I was actually scheduled to, to DJ the show between bands. I was all excited. I was excited to meet the bands and talk to them and be like, hey, like, you know, I, I reached out to you earlier. I'm glad this worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, but immediately, like, couldn't get into the venue. Um, then when I got into the venue, I was like, hey, I'm supposed to be DJing. And they're like, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> nerd. And I was like, no. Eventually get to, to get to the DJ booth, play some songs. Then want to go talk to the bands. They're like, no, you're not allowed backstage. Um, so it was, I definitely recall being like, super bummed. I'm like, fuck, that was like the worst experience ever that helped put the show on. And like the bands were like thanking me, but I wanted to like, go be like, hey, what's up? Yeah, like, yeah. Then. Um, so from that point on, I remember being like, man, that like really sucked. And then juxtaposed or compared to one of these punk shows I was going to at the same time where it was like, oh, this is way cooler. There's like no, you know, little stage, bands are there, everyone's hanging out. Mm-hmm. It's way less bullshit, way more fun. Um, so kind of started taking the cues being like, you know what, I'm going to apply or try to apply like what I was surrounded by at the punk scene and apply it to the bands that, you know, that, that I wanted to book, which no one was really doing ska shows at the time. And I liked ska. So I was like, hey, I'm going to start reaching out to ska bands and be like, hey, do you want to play a basement of a church or a basement of a community center? Or, you know, or actually, I, actually the, the top of a community center. So just start reaching out and kind of applying those DIY punk ethos to like ska music. Mm-hmm. So how did you come in contact with them? You started doing shows at the, the church on a pretty regular basis. That yeah. would be First Unitarian Church, Thunder Person Chestnut. How did you come to begin doing shows so there? I, I did a bunch of shows... Initially, I did a bunch of shows at, um, like, on UPenn's campus, uh, around Drexel's campus. I used a space called the Community Education Center, which was, that hosted shows, I think, in the, like, the early 80s. Yeah, some um, of the people talk about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I did shows there. Um, of course, the, the spots on Lancaster Avenue, which were Stog 13, um, was friendly with those people, started doing shows there. Um, and then through the, your, the Cabbage Collective, I started... Um, finding out about the, the, these shows at, I guess it's a long story to how I started finding out about the Cabbage Collective and get to that, but basically it was known that, in, I think my first church show was in 1996 or so. So it was that point established as a place where it was cool that anyone could kind of do a show there. So just you know, looked up the phone number in the phone book and was like, hey, I want to do a show here. Um, and then started doing um, ska, and then started mixing like ska bands and punk bands and, and getting like really good turnouts. And at that point, um, of doing shows at the church, it was like literally like going to a place called Dragonetti's, which was in Westchester, where we could rent a PA for like super cheap, like a pretty decent PA at that time, or at least that we thought. It was like maybe like like seventy bucks, and they give you all the mics, cable mm-hmm. stands, uh, you know everything. So we drive out to Westchester, pick up the PA, drive back to the city, set it all up, and then it'd just be me and like two or three other friends. No one really knows how to do sound, but just kind of like turning up the mics <laughs> yeah. or, you know, figuring shit out. Uh, then doing door. I kind of remember that point, like doing door and then like there's being a sound problem. I'd be like, wait, like don't let anyone else in. And like fix the sound problem and come back and be like, all right, five bucks, you know, or, like figuring that shit out. But at, at that point in time, it was like super, um, I want to say amateur, but it was just like very 
it was the most DIY thing I think ever. Where it was like basically like two or three people like doing everything at, at that time. Um, and then as time progressed, the church show started to get a little bit more and more established. But uh, I guess going back, I then started dating a girl at the time whose name was Marie, and she started uh, getting me more into kind of not want to say weird, but like more emo bands in the sense of like older emo like yeah. San Diego like Gravity Records style stuff or like Trouble Man Records or Kill Rock Stars and I remember her taking me to see bands like Unwound or Blonde Redhead or things like that right around the same time 95, 96 and then uh, started getting way more interested in music like that uh, versus like ska and um, started going to those shows more and then Cabbage Collective was setting up those shows at the church and I was going to the church so it kind of just I was like, hey, I wonder if, I'm sure I can just call them up and do a show here. And that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of how that started. Bad. So eventually the R5 becomes kind of a big operation. I mean, uh, it seems like you become the DIY group, uh, you know, doing the mm-hmm. shows in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, so did you, is there a point where you kind of figured, like, I want this to be my primary work, or, or does it begin to kind of expand it kinda, like, exponentially? It, it grew so organically where... Um, the the first year actually this goes back to a question you're talking about the first year I started get doing reaching out to bands to do my own shows it was 96 I did 7 shows that year and it was just all like fun whatever and the first flyer I made I used um, I wasn't obsessed but just because I took the R5 train to the city when I was younger I was taking it to college at the time I actually took it to high school so I was just, as a joke, I was like, everyone had like a cool name, like Cabbage Collective or Unabomber. So I was like, I'm going to call it R5 Productions. As a joke, made it on the back of an R5 train flyer, you know, printed out the worst punk font, you know, cut out the flyers, <laughs> do all that shit. So the name R5 actually was just like started as a joke, just putting it on the back of the R5 train schedule. But um, the second year, after the seven shows, it was maybe like 10 shows. And then the third year was maybe like, 14 or 20 or it grew so slow and organically where there wasn't um it was never set like i'm gonna start a business or i'm gonna this is what i want to do or it was just a hobby at that time I were you working at the same time did you have other yeah jobs? I, was, I was going to school and then uh i went this i was going to drexel i dropped out by my third trimester which is just over a year at drexel um where punk music like, I was totally infatuated with the music stuff when I was going to school. I was going to school for information systems, which is basically computers, and wanted to have nothing to do with it. Like, I started, you know, having my radio show on KDU, traveling to New York to see bands, getting more involved. So I wanted to kind of, this seemed way more exciting to me. It seemed like it was way more interesting. But do your parents want to strangle so, you? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so basically, like, I, I don't even remember, and I wonder if I got blacked out, but, like, I don't think I ever recalled, like, having a discussion with them. Like, they were paying for my school for the most part. I took mm-hmm. out some loans in my name, but it was, just, it was you know, the bare minimum, probably, like, three or $4,000 you get from, like, a Pell Grant, whatever it is. So I, I just remember now, and I'm not sure if this is how it went down, but basically it was just, like, I'm done. Like, I'm not going to school anymore because I was going to school less and less, and starting to go to shows more and more. Uh-huh. And it was to the point where, like, my last trimester, I, I went, barely went to, like, any classes. I was at the radio station, like, six hours a day, which made no sense. I was going to school, but just not going to class. Like, <laughs> yeah. hanging, like paying money, essentially, to hang out at the radio station. Um, told my parents, I'm like, I'm not, I'm done. Like, I, I kind of want to do this. Uh, they freaked out, of course, and they're like, 
total fuck up. Like, what do you think you're doing? Uh -huh. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I was just like, hey, I can go back to school, figure it out. Um, and at that point in time, I actually got accepted in the Drexel in like an early admissions program where by the middle of my junior year, I was already accepted for Drexel. So like the plan was I was supposed to go to Drexel, get involved with information systems, but the time was like the number one school for it, get this co-op job and become like computer millionaire or you know, whatever. But uh, when I dropped out, computers were like so hot that you could still get a job almost anywhere. If you're like, yo, I know how to turn on a computer, you can pretty much get a job. So I was fortunate enough where I was like, oh, I, I, an information system student at Drexel University, I was able to get a job at University of Pennsylvania in the School of Dentistry's computer lab. And I was like the head technical support person for there. So I was probably making, it was maybe like eight to $10 an hour then. Um, and was just making money off that. So at the time, going back to that, like, I thought it was completely unethical to make any money off the shows, where once the expenses were paid, 100% went to the bands and that included like the friends who were helping out like no one took a dime all the money went to the bands um, and th and that that's just the way it was where I was like hey I, my rent in West Philly at the time was I think around $145 a month so, so <laughs> like so like it didn't it didn't take much I was working like pretty much full-time but it was like a real easy job my rent would be paid like you know within 14 hours of working like it was, it was super chill so it was cool just to basically give bands all the money, and being out of school, it allowed me to focus all my time and energy on like the, the few little shows that I did. So they ended up doing well, and then the ball starts getting rolling, and that's where it kind of, again, grows from like 14 shows to 20 shows to 30 shows. And around, let's say like, started in 96, around 99, which is the year that Solid 13 closes in West Philadelphia, which is the DIY venue, like the kind of the most infamous one, at least in the 90s. Um, it gets shut down by L&I, and someone on a... I'm still working at University of Pennsylvania, and someone on a UPenn news group posted an article that appeared in the city paper. that was like, oh, Solid 13's closed. There's all, you know, dozens of shows were happening there every year, like hundreds of shows. And now these kids have nowhere to do a show. Um, and a guy by the name of Tom Lussenhop, who at that time was the, like a vice, I don't know if he was tech, he was the head of business development. He was essentially like a vice president at UPenn, big music fan, loved like WFMU, loved WKDU, kind of had eccentric taste for like a, like a big higher up at a large organization like that. Um, read the article and I don't know how, somehow found my name and sent me an email and was like, hey, read about Style 13 closing, that sucks. Um, would you be interested in talking with me to trying to figure out or solve a problem? Your problem of not having places to you know, do shows where, you, where we'll basically help you do them on the campus of University of Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. which was super crazy. And yeah. I was like, oh man, like, th th this is wild. And, um, as that conversation started rolling, then it, it appeared to get things started getting a little bit more serious. Where it's like, oh shit, like the university is about to spend a ton of money on us to have to give us a space to do shows at. And you think um, this purely just came from from his desire to see that happen? Well, so I was gonna, there's two reasons. One is that um, he wanted to see it because you know I'm sure he was like, oh, this would be cool to have like cool stuff happen on this campus. Maybe 
you know, not to go to the stereotype, but you Pan kids are typically like uh, very insular, scared of everything. <laughs> like, right. you know, like, oh, maybe this will broaden their horizon. They'll try something new. Maybe yeah. they'll leave campus every once in a while. But, um, the, uh, but there's another problem, and it, and it sort of was on our, this is, oh, that was about to sound horrible, but they had another problem where the students were uh, dying because of drinking, and they formed a task force, and the number one recommendation of that task force was that the students needed a place to go to, to be entertained that didn't have alcohol being served at it. Mm-hmm. So he put two and two together and was just like, hey, there's these guys that want to do shows and have people here. There's no bar there, although everyone was like, you know, BYOB, but according to the news story, it's just like a hole in the wall, everyone's having fun. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, there's all these students like, give, give us something to do. We just want to do something on campus. So and he came up with this great idea, like, let's, put, let's solve two problems at once. UPenn can help out this music community. We can help out our own community. And, you know, we'll go from there. So at that point, uh, as conversations, you know, the first initial conversations started happening, and it was, it was all fine and nice. But as things progressed and it seemed to get more serious, that's when I, uh, I basically quit because I was like, oh, we're about to open up or get involved somehow on this campus, and this is going to take up um, a lot of my time. So from a, that point, which is right around 1999-2000, that, that's when it suddenly things became to seem like more permanent. Not permanent, but like this is more than just a hobby or, you know, every once in a while that this could become something full-time. So and shifting over to, to working with UPenn on the mm-hmm. shows, did you kind of have like a clearly defined cut of like you would make this amount of money in order to live or like how would that work? So the, the, the UPenn... It was like an interesting saga. So all during this time, I was still doing shows at the First Unitarian Church, but not a lot. Maybe like five shows a year at the church. Most of them are at Stalag or its neighbor, the Kill Time, and then every once in a while at the church. Um, the U Pen thing comes along, and the first, the first idea is that we're going to take over a space at I forget the exact address, but it's basically at 40th and Market Streets right by the subway station. And the building at that point was called the Iindi building, um, which was, UPenn was just using it for storage, uh, for lamps, lamp posts. Um, then they had this idea, like, we're gonna get the lamp posts out of there. It's a big room, it holds like, it probably had like 700 people. It was like a huge step up from Stalag, which was a garage that held, like, at the craziest, like two, 250 people. Yeah. Um, and this was like a humongous warehouse, I had bathrooms, it was like a big step up. Um, the idea is that they're going to give us this space, and, and it's going to be great, and concerts are going to happen, and students are going to be pleased. Um, we go through the zoning, licensing, all, all these things are happening, and it's pretty much a done deal to the point where we're allowed to publicize it. We have shows booked there. Um, Do they have an infrastructure in terms of like, do they build a stage? Oh no, so yeah, so like all that's kind of like, there's going to be a stage built, there's no, we basically were going to pay rent to Penn, but the rent was going to be, from what I recall, super cheap. It was going to basically be like 400 bucks a month to get this space. And, um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't, uh, looking back, it was almost like, oh, the rent, like, well, it needs to be what it's be. Let's get this, this train going. Let's get these things happening. So they were going to build the stage. We were going to provide sound. Like where we were going to either rent the PA from a guy, John Hiltz, who used to be in a punk band, Born Against, uh, who's doing, who's bringing sound at that point to a lot of the shows at the church, or that UPenn would give us a small system that we could leave up there. Um, 
so things things were set and it was, it was ready to go. We actually it was myself, uh, my really good friend uh, Anthony Crosdale, who at that time was known as Tony Pointless, and around that time, like for three three years probably prior, maybe two, I think like ninety seven to ninety nine, ninety six, ninety nine. He was like the main guy that lived at Stalag and ran Stalag and was and was sort of you know his under his control, as scary as that sounds. And then <laughs> it was Andrew Martini who I lived with at a house a few block, few doors down called House of Conflict. And Andrew was sort of the organization the organizer, like running the schedule, making sure you know the shows were happening, like they weren't being double booked. So it was myself, Andrew, and Tony involved in this project on Fortieth Market, and. Um, we come up with a name, and looking back, it was like the best, funniest name. Where like, they're like, "What do you guys want to call the venue?" And we're like, "Stalock 2000," because <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the year 2000. Like, all right, so Stalock 13 is closing. Stalock 2000 is about to open. Everyone's excited. We appear on a cover feature for the city paper, where this the story I think was titled like "Finally a Music Venue of Their Own," and this is all about how these three kids from West Philly are going to have a operated space that's all their own and UPenn's great and wonderful for providing it. Um, so everything's ready to go and then a couple weeks out from the day we're going to sign the lease uh, a member of the board at university, the board of trustees, like the highest board up there um, and this, this, is little, this is a little bit hearsay and we're not sure but apparently they had a son or daughter who was going to shows and was doing drugs at them. We don't know where the shows were, what venue, whatever, but this board member um, decided that like concerts were basically a place where you buy drugs. And uh -huh. it, so, <laughs> so this person just like assumed the worst and was like, wait, these kids are gonna buy drugs, they're gonna buy drugs on university property, and then they're gonna die, and then we're gonna get sued <laughs> in a wrongful <laughs> right. death suit. Uh -huh. So like, no, this can't happen. Brings up this anecdotal evidence in a in a board of trustees meeting, just being like, project has to be scrapped. Like we know there's drug dealers at these shows. Like we have proof. Like my, you know, they don't. I don't think they mentioned at the meeting, but someone eventually told me that a specific member was like, oh, it's it was my son or daughter who was buying the drugs. Uh -huh. um, we have to put an end to this. Like it's it's going to be the worst thing. So the t I remember that morning when I was going to sign the lease, like all excited. I get a call from that, that like VP head guy Tom Lessonhop being like, like, project's done, like it's over. And I was like, what? And he's like, I'm gonna meet you at a coffee shop like at 7:30 or something. Like meet me at this coffee shop, and then he's with uh, UPenn's like head lawyer, and he brings out this paper that's all like redacted with black ink through the <laughs> names. So I couldn't see it, and it was, the general gist was like. The board of trustee believes that there's people buying drugs at the shows, and it could eventually cause or lead to a wrongful death. Right, suit. shows that don't even happen yet. I mean, yeah, you know, these shows exactly. haven't even occurred, and there's already people buying drugs at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and then they go as far as to theorize that the name R5 Productions, which again is named after the train line that I took going to the city when I was yeah. younger, is a ploy to get kids from the western suburbs to think it's safe, which was like that's. A huge stretch of the imagination. I don't even understand how you could you could possibly <laughs> think that they're going to go into a prison camp called Stalag Two Thousand in German prison camp. It was like the R Five name makes them feel safe. They get to the show, then either they or they have house dealers that will deal them drugs. What the fuck? Where did they come up with these? And and then someone's going to die. Wow. So, you know, they said project's done. It's over. There's there's nothing else we can do. Um, at that point in time, you know. 
they both realized it was ridiculous, but they they thought that, you know, it's just too far gone, the situation's so horrible, um, there's nothing we can do. So at that point, I had a, a pretty decent mailing list. I was pretty internet savvy where I was gathering email addresses from people that was, that was emailing me about shows or concerts or stealing email addresses off Usenet forms, whatever it was. Um, so I sent out an email to our email list. I was like, hey, everyone, you know that uh, concert venue that, was, that we were going to have, it's, it's not happening anymore because the University of Pennsylvania thinks that's going to become like a, everyone's going to be irresponsible and drink and party and do drugs and someone's going to die. So if you have any positive experiences uh, from the going to shows or how this has positively affected your life in one way or another, please email us and let us know and forward this around. Like send it to as many people as you can. Um, we need your help. Yeah, I remember getting that email. Yeah, I think yeah. I wrote one of the testimonials. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I sent out this email, posted it on a couple of message boards and around, and you know, hoping like, fuck yeah, like hopefully we can get a couple hundred letters. I'm gonna go there and like, here you go, you know. The musical lot. swell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we end up getting something like, actually, I have the number. I can't remember the number now, but it was like two or three thousand letters Jesus. in like a day in a twenty-four wow. hour period. So. I print out um, the emails, like, which is like a huge, crazy stack, you know, like this big. Uh, maybe it's probably closer to 2,000 because I remember that it wasn't that big. But uh, print out all the emails. Definitely cherry pick the ones that are written by like West Philly community leaders, pre like uh, professors, uh, people that were like parents of students. Mm. Um, you know, sort of like rather than like fuck yeah, man, the show's gonna be awesome. <laughs> yeah. It was the more like shows have helped my daughter like integrate and um so just showed up at UPenn's office the next day and they're like you know unannounced the guy's super busy and he's like and I'm just like it's really important I see him they pull him out of a meeting he's like what are you doing and I was like here like and just hand him the stack and he's like what is this and I was like, it's it's letters from people that have like positive like experiences from shows he's like are you fucking serious like what am I supposed to do with this and I was like I was just hand it to them and he's just like alright I mean like that's really this is amazing and really great and I'll try but we'll, we'll see what I can do and I was like alright so and then I don't know how like this was again 99 2000 so I'm like 22 or so like incredibly media savvy or like situationally savvy then me Tony and Andrew um, print up a bunch of uh, banners and posters that say essentially like we want Stalag 2000 on our campus mm -hmm. and make it look like if it's that the students are up in arms right. so then one night we go out and just plaster UPenn's <laughs> campus with like we want Stalag 2000 on our campus so the next morning it's all over the administration building like we pasted glue tapes stay all over Locust Walk um, the next day administrators come in they're like wait what like how's this and then in the Daily Pennsylvanian they run a story that day about how the administration um, is denying the venue, but they don't go into a reason why. They get in touch with me, I tell them why. The following day, they run an editorial about, I remember how like, the administration has to get its hand out of the sand, it's 1999, like, kids aren't buying drugs at shows, this is totally anecdotal, there's nothing to be really afraid about. And then I guess kids started reading out the student newspaper and then seeing all the posters, like, yeah, like, we want a campus. The university doesn't think we can like hang out without killing ourselves. Mm -hmm. So then people from like like frats are getting in touch with me, heads of student life, like all these organizations that would never have anything to do with us 
are now becoming like our ally in this weird fight. Uh, and then at that point, uh, other news organizations start to pick up on it. And that's what I mentioned, like, yeah, we handed in like 2,000 letters of support that we got in 24 hours. That becomes like a huge fact in the story. And then just basically within like a seven day period, the administration was getting like hammered enough where they were like, okay, like, all right, so like call up the dogs, like we'll, we'll figure something out, like we'll get this to work. So uh, after a couple of meetings, they're like, all right, it can't happen at the 40th and Market location because there's such bad blood and we just need to move the project in another direction. So we're going to give you another space at 4040 Locust Street, which was an old, originally an Urban Outfitters, then it became, uh, then it was just nothing for a while, I think, but it was this huge warehouse. Um, like, we'll give you access to this warehouse as long as you, like, just say to any media or anyone that it was a misunderstanding and that you didn't know. Like, it was a misunderstanding and that right, right. the project at 40 the Market died, you took it the wrong way, we were always going to move you somewhere else, and now this is where we're going to move you. Yeah. Right. So, great, sounds good, I'll, I'll lie, whatever. I'll do it, because now we got our venue. So then we get to send out the email to everyone, like, hooray, everyone, like, we're going to move to a new location, everything's, like, fine and set. So the process begins all over again at this new location at 4040 Locust Street. And um, same group of people, myself, Andrew, and Tony, do the same thing, like get it rezoned, get letters of support from the neighborhood, do all the legal steps um, to get us there. And kind of to UPenn's credit, they let us do that. So it was really interesting to learn how to do it, how to get the licensing, how to get the zoning. It was very hands-on, which helped me a lot in later years. But um, so go through all the process again, we get approved, and now the space that we're going to call 4040 opens, which is just a big, huge warehouse with nothing in it. We rent a temporary stage, we have a small PA and stuff in there that's uh, rented from John, and we start to do shows there. And it's really successful, everyone's really happy, you do lots of crazy shows in there where you have like eight, nine hundred people in there. He's selling a lot of drugs. Sound, yeah, tons of, <laughs> so, moving so much heroin, like the richest person ever. Um, but the one thing that I guess the university didn't like think about at the time was that they put us, there was like maybe a two inch drywall separating us from an organization called Hillel, which is like the Jewish um, student center, cafeteria slash praying area for um, I guess more devout Jews. So we had these like loud ass rock concerts with punk bands playing, there's two, two inch drywall while people are like literally like praying, like having these holy <laughs> moments. Yeah. Their space is, um, you know, there, there's certain elements that can be brought into their space, certain food, there's all these restrictions. Um, it, it was just like a, it was a bad idea. Looking, obviously in retrospect, it was a horrible yeah. idea. But even then we were like, is this gonna work? Like having like a punk band while like everyone's having kosher meals and praying at like <laughs> right when it's gonna happen. Uh, so we have a couple months of 4040. It, it's really successful. Um, same sort of deal where we basically pay, I think it was like, if the show, is, if it's a big show, we pay $200. If it's a small show, we pay $100. No one's there to check on us. They give us keys to the building and alarm code. Totally self-sufficient. Hundreds of people are coming in. Like, it's going fine. But Hillel hates it. And on one of the our biggest shows, which was Dillinger 4 from Minneapolis, A Veil from Richmond, and Leatherface, I think Leatherface. Yeah. I'm not sure. That might have been me. I'm trying to think. But I know Avail and Dillinger 4 played, or were scheduled to play. With this big show, it's like, and it's another show, it's going to do like 800 people. It's going to be crazy. And Hillel 
it was on a Saturday, Hillel changed the locks so he couldn't get in. Yeah. And they were inside, and we're like banging on the door like, yo, our key isn't working, let us in. And they're just like, I don't know. They call security, and they're like, there's these people trying to get into the building. And I was like, what? You know, like, hey. Little fuckers. Like, yeah, and I was like, well, hey, this is, we belong here. We're the guys that do the shows here. And they're like, well, what proof do you have? And I was like, I have my ID. Like, and they're looking it up, and they're like, we can't find, like, any proof that you guys were supposed to be here? I was like, I swear, like, here, call Tom Lessonhop, like the VP guy. So he's calling on the phone, talking to like the head of police. And meanwhile, there's hundreds of people outside, like fucking screaming and yelling. And then he's like, let them in. He's like, he was on on vacation at that point. He was in Florida. And he was like, oh, let them in. And the cops like, I, I have no idea who you are. Like, I need you to come down. He's like, I can't. I'm in Florida, and which makes me feel like they definitely knew exactly when the time this. Um, and then the cop was just like, I have no way to identify who that person is. Like, you can just call up your dad and tell him to yeah, say that. Yeah. Like, I can't get you into the space. So we ended up having to cancel that show. Uh, hundreds of kids are bummed. We lose tons of money. Like, everyone's, we basically want to kill Hillel. And, you know, like, it, it's just a bad situation. So the university is like, all right, no longer 40-40. We're going to move you to this other room called the Rotunda. And over there, uh, it's a church. A desanctified church, or I don't even know if it was Catholic, but it's a church that's no longer in use, and they have a back room that holds about 500 people. We'll give you that space. And then the whole thing starts all over again. Getting licensed, approved, zoning, there's asbestos. Asbestos has to get removed. But did they ever have any other shows there before, or was this the first time that space was they, used? They for? used it. There was an organization called The Foundation, which was founded by a guy named Andrew Zitzer, and it was part of his senior thesis where he was like, University of Pennsylvania needs to have a space for the community where things for the, like basically events for the community can happen that has nothing to do with students. That the university needs to branch out and have people from the community coming to campus and checking things out and, you know, it's a mutual... Uh, right, so they're not so insular. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, hey, like, we let people into the campus, like, they think more highly of us, then, like, this relationship can get going. It was a really good idea. So he had this thing called the foundation, which was more, less student-based, but students were allowed to come to it and more neighborhood-based. So they were doing those events, which were, like, like uh, slam poetry, uh, like movie screenings, they had like b-boy competition, they would have live like, jazz shows, or just whatever, it was like a hodgepodge of stuff. But then he, he kind of developed this space and then I feel bad, like, so the university is basically like, all right, like hit the road foundation, like these guys are coming in, like me, Andrew, and Tony. Um, so we get involved, set up with the rotunda, and then we start doing shows there. And then same kind of thing, shows do really well, Hundreds of people are going. It's a slam, like super success. It's now we have an entire building, this humongous building that's like all our own. Looking back, I can't believe they even like trusted us with a key, mm -hmm. where they were, they gave us a key to the property, like let us come in and out, do whatever we wanted to do, paid like a nominal rent. Um, we were in charge of like the maintenance for the building, where like a, a toilet backed up, we'd have to like hire a plumber or figure it out ourselves, and it was kind of like a weird deal. Um, but then someone a group of students at the university kind of figured out, they're like, wait, so they went from 40th and Market to 40th and Locust to 40th and Walnut, which is where the rotunda's at. The university spent hundreds of thousands of dollars getting these spaces ready, and they have nothing to do with the university. <laughs> no students are going to the shows. Meanwhile, SPEC, which is like, stands for, I forget what it was, like student something event committee, is that like a shortage for, for event space? And like, so the, the people who are paying tuition are like dying for somewhere to do events at. 
And yet the university spent at, the, at that time it was like five hundred thousand dollars. Jesus, they this. put that much into it because they had to redo the spaces, get rid of asbestos, lawyers, yeah. like yeah. It's a shame their students were such nerds that they couldn't appreciate cool yeah, music. Yeah, shows. exactly. And I'm sure at the time there was, but like. So at that point, they're like, yo, what the fuck? You spent a half a million dollars on these assholes and like, <laughs> you keep moving them around. And then the university was kind of, like, essentially just like, you're right. <laughs> and then like, that's all it took. And I had to have like my like fourth meeting with the guy, Tom, who was just like, oh, here we are again. Like, <laughs> we had to kick you out. And he's like, to be honest, after the third time, like, I don't know if this, if this is a good thing that's happening or not like is, is this pretty bad and I was just like you know what I think we need to move on like thanks for the three four years of going through this the half million dollars that the university spent like <laughs> yes. but um, we, we kind of have to move on so through I guess the long point of all that was like through all that like all the legal processes all that stuff it became a super full time job and then that's right around when it kind of ended in 2003 or 2002 I don't know somewhere around there um, when our relationship with UPenn ended, things suddenly became like a lot more serious. And through those venues, the 4040, the Rotunda, um, we were doing a lot more touring shows, a lot more shows with like bigger guarantees, shows with bigger production. So things things got a lot more serious. And once we lost those venues, we sort of took these bigger bands and bigger shows and went back to our old friends at the First Unitarian Church, who were like, yeah. Like come on back, like let, let's 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 do some more shows, and that was in two thousand two, two thousand three, and then um, at that point we were probably doing like not thirty, maybe around thirty shows a month, and then all of a sudden we're coming to the church like, all right, let's go, like you know we have twenty two shows this month, let's let's do that, and so the church was really appreciative of the rent and the revenue that we're generating from the shows, and we were really happy. Um, or I was really happy just because then it was like a place that was welcoming us. There was no bullshit. We weren't like fighting with neighbors, students. So the church never had any issues in terms of, um, say, graffiti or people being outside of the church who were maybe drinking or things like that. No, and like we we did like we realized that the church like the church is totally different than Stalag 13, which was like Stalag back then. There was kids drinking everywhere, but it was you know it was a dirty warehouse. Whereas when you apply it to a church, then it's like. A, it's kind of common sense, like, yeah, we can't have kids drinking out here. So we would do our best to sort of, um, you know, police it if you saw someone outside. I mean, the, the, it's like a funny line, but it would be like, dude, man, you're like fucking up the scene. Like, you're going to close the yeah, only yeah. venue that's left. Like, you're going to fuck this up. And the person would feel so bad. They'd be like, oh, sorry, man. And like, throw, you know, throw the beer away. Or like, if someone graffitied in the bathroom, we'd be like, shit, like, get all the graffiti. We had a kit, basically, it was like paint remover, graffiti mm -hmm. remover, like, work our best. I remember someone like smashed a mirror the church at that time and we're like fuck what do we do like shit and you know we're trying to put a mirror and fix it but but eventually we just you know the next morning be like hey someone broke a mirror we'll pay for it as long as we paid for it or fixed whatever damages the church was like cool and they it was a sort of they got the rental revenue from us but then they also got to serve one of their kind of goals of the church is to open it up as a community space. Yeah, and I don't they know wanted, if it's been established that they're a Uten Unitarian church. Oh yeah, sorry, yes, so, yeah. yeah. So they want to open up their space to everyone. Whoever wants to come in and use this space, they, the easiest comparison that I say to people is like, they look at it as a community event space that anyone can come in, anyone can do an event and it's great and we want that. It's not like, ugh, we have to put up with these shows, although I'm sure there's some of that, but it's you know, it fills their mission. But if you're doing shows, say 22, 30 shows a month, based on a you know, 30, yeah. 31 day month, 
how do they have the space to, to have other groups in there? I mean, is there a competition for use of that space? So there, there, there was, and there's, there actually still is. We still do shows at the church. And there, there's, there was often times where, you know, we'd have a band loading in a sound check and be like, Shh, guys, you can't make noise because, like, restorative justice theater group is upstairs <laughs> for the next the half hour. Yeah, or they like, Alcoholics Anonymous. Or, it was, it's a lot to handle, and there was lots of, like, give and take, where there was lots of negotiating on the nights of shows where... Um, it's like, okay, we'll do this. For instance, there's a show coming up in two weeks where we have a composer playing in the sanctuary of the First Unitarian Church, but there's a wedding going on before. So it's like, all right, you guys can get in at five and like get sound checked, but then you have to kind of like be quiet between eight and nine because they're having the reception downstairs. So it's really challenging. Um, it's not like any other music venue where because you have to account for all these different groups using the space. Right, right. But they're, the church is willing to do it because it, it's, a, it's a large revenue stream and again, it fills that mission. Yeah, I can them. imagine that if, if you're paying them rent on you know almost an entire month's worth of events, that's got to really dramatically change it their helps. financial situation. It helps them and then it also allowed for them, they applied for a grant, oh, I forget the name of the grant, but basically it was a, a national grant that was opened up to churches who use their space for something else besides church or the congregation. It was basically for ways that the church served the community. Um, and there was a couple of those grants and they ended up winning like top prize or whatever because it was like, oh, we, our church is a concert venue. And then like, the people behind that grant were like, what? This is crazy. So they had, um, they used that money to repair their roof. So there's all these residual things that are happening because of the concerts too right. that, that were uh, sort of helping with the church. Yeah, so you have a sort of symbiotic relationship. Yeah, exactly. Too, yeah. Now, after a few years, the shows came to a really great prominence. I mean, you would get, you know, national articles about it and there'd be lots of attention paid to mm -hmm. what you were doing there so did the church people were they aware of the fact that like they were sitting on you know like the coolest DIY venue in Philadelphia that was being paid to the attention was being paid to it outside of the city they, they kind of weren't they, they I think they're just like oh these kids are cra like crazy or weird you know like it's cool they're using our space but then um, in 2003 the city of Philadelphia comes in and shuts down the church um, they give us a cease operations order because they, they basically argue that this is a church, not a concert venue. These shows are essentially illegal. Like, go somewhere else. Um, and the technical ruling was that because there was non-church-related events happening at the church, that, uh, I should go back, each building in Philadelphia has an intended use. For instance, like a record store would be to sell records, or a gym would be you know, a workout facility for people to work out. On the church's intended use permit, it's to hold, you know, mass and ceremony and serve the church community. So, and we're not sure still to this day, like, who or why, like, who got involved, but it was clearly someone from outside of the city was putting a ton of pressure on various people at license and inspection to shut us down, where eventually they came in and they're like, hey, this isn't, um, this isn't a church usage, you're against the zoning, in order to have concerts the church needs to re, re reapply for zoning as a concert venue, um, which is and a, not a church yes, or or in, in addition, I guess yeah, yeah. it didn't even get that far. But I think that they were kind of saying like you have to add add on to be like and concert venue. Right. And was there a feeling that it was like another promoter or venue there, that was a little sour grapes? Yeah. The, so there was still and like basically everyone pointed the finger at that time to Clear Channel, and which was um, an amalgamation Clear Channel was a huge national concert promoter that gobbled up lots of smaller entities all over the country and just became this one like big behemoth company. Um, and there was, 
like really anecdotal evidence and still like who knows to this day and I, at, back then I was like I think it's them I think it's them now I mean it could have been coincidences or what but there there was communication with them from people in their office to the church trying to get shows in there like hey we want to do shows in there too and the church amazingly was like hey now you know we want to work with, like these kids this independent group like clear channel want to be fucking bothered with this church because it because it was the coolest deal yeah, like yeah. they're like shit like this is cool let's do our lame version of the cool yeah, thing yeah, like we're cool losing thing. we're losing shows like fuck what like how how do we get involved with this so um they start writing and then uh the church accidentally sends me one thinking an email thinking it's like a um like a, a band asking to play there and in it, someone from Clear Channel being like, hey, we'll make a large donation to the church. We just want to do a show on this date for this artist. We'll pay like 10 times the rent, whatever it takes. We really want to start doing shows here. And they're like, hey, do you know who this band is? And I'm like, no, this isn't a band. <laughs> this is like the competitors. And I was like, hey, that's a lot of money on the table. I realize it, but like that kind of screws us. And then they were like, no problem. Like you guys have been doing shows with us forever. We trust you. We don't want to help out those, those folks. Um, and then the trouble. So then, so then, exactly. Then trouble, like trouble, start happening. Where it was definitely an organized campaign, um, where they come to the church, shut the church down for like a really sketchy reason, being that, like, hey, you have to get rezoned. But if you go to any church in Philadelphia, they are constantly doing things that aren't church related. Like there's our alcoholics and you know, like, uh, narcotics anonymous meetings everywhere. Or there's you know theater groups or yeah like flea markets yeah whatever like so we things. so um, we ended up getting uh, there's a Philadelphia Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts is an organization that ended up um, getting involved and they just took a study of all the churches within like you know, three block radius and they're like here's all the things that these churches do and it was like you know this play this meeting this thing like mm-hmm. all this stuff and when it eventually got to court. Um, it got kicked out right away. I was like, no, a church can do whatever it, be- it wants to within, you know, within its walls. Like, if they want to have bands play, they can have bands play. Um, but through all of that, when the church was shut down, at that point, like, we, were, we weren't, like, a huge company, or not even a company still, but we weren't doing, like, huge shows, but it was pretty noted or noticeable in Philadelphia, and it was, it was the cool spot. Lots of people were going there. It was really popular. But when the church, when the city shut it down, that became like such an instant, um, like media explosion where it's like the city's not letting these kids do a show in the mm-hmm. church basement, and boom! All of a sudden, it's in like Spin, Rolling Stone. There's an article on MTV about it. I'm doing interviews for like NPR. Um, it becomes this feature of a cover story on Harper's, where it, which wow. is like a political, you know, political magazine, like one of the largest, yeah, oldest yeah. institutions. They do a story about the church. Um, the craziest thing and that I'm sort of oddly proud of is that Howard Stern talks about it on his radio show. Oh, that's com- great. Complaining about Clear Channel. Being like, they shut this guy down and some Philadelphia is doing concerts in a, a basement. Some DJ, not the, like a DJ, but from some college radio station, which was KDU, you know, like, uh, talking about what it. What Baba so, Bowie said? <laughs> I called. I was calling Bob like, hey, I'm that guy. Like, put me on air. Um, but they, uh, it, it just explodes. And when it eventually gets thrown out, um, then the church and R5 suddenly has this like humongous national profile. And then from there, it then became like the place where like, oh, we want to play there. Like that's the place that got shut down. Like these kids are great, and oh, this is one of them. This is what music's about. And, like, let's not play a venue. So if any outsider forces did have anything to do with it, um, there's a couple other things that 
that happened right around the same time where like like they raided the ticket store that the record store that I was selling tickets at and and I threatened to shut them down because they weren't licensed to sell tickets you know like that ended up getting fought and also won in court but it was a very systematic like let's affect the church the place that sells tickets the places I was receiving mail got a threat that was like hey this business isn't registered here you're gonna like it was yeah, a, is, the, is the city trying to get his tentacles into the money because if they think it's, it's not really it's not the money so at they, all they never really pay attention no, to like how does this money move around no these? like it, it's it's all about at that point which is zoning it was all the intended uses but they used it in every but like this is a record store you're selling tickets as a ticketing agency you're not licensed to be a ticketing agent so you have to stop or you're, we're going to shut down your record store. And the place that was receiving my mail, because I didn't want to get packages sent to my house because I was getting so many demos and stuff, they were like, you're operating a concert promotions company in here, not, you're not this, you know, you're going to get shut down if you get any more mail here. So it was, it was very well researched. It all happened at the same time. L&I, it's worth saying, is a complaint-driven agency where very, very rarely do they go out on their own to be like, hey, let's, 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 let's investigate this. That has to be something, um, you know, brought to their attention. And on the church end of things, they had it even worse, where like they're they're a nonprofit as the church is, so they get discounted utilities. Someone went to all the utility companies, to Pico, to PGW, being like, "This is a concert venue, not a church. You have to charge them the commercial rate." Uh-huh. So the church was actually getting bullied to be like, oh, "Yo, I think one of the places suspended their nonprofit status for like two months, and they had to pay commercial rates." While I got investigated, and they so, never, they never shook hand you though through this no, whole thing. Yeah, they're which they're sticking through it. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and through that group, Philadelphia Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, they were fighting it, like doing everything, and kind of got rid of everything pretty quickly. Like, it did take a while. It took eight weeks, but in the terms of like law and how things move, it's actually really quick. Yeah. Um, so it was definitely an organ. Someone was. Behind, like behind all of it, and still to this day, I have yeah. no idea. Yeah, it's frustrating that you don't know who who was the hard on that. I mean, I, I love the fact because the, whoever did that like, ended up fucking up. Like they screwed us over for eight weeks, but then when we returned, it was like a profile times ten, and then it made us even bigger, more popular, yeah, more yeah. obnoxious, and then it became the sort of like um, like treasure in Philadelphia, where it's getting written about in guidebooks. Or yeah, like, oh, this is cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, it's cool. If you want to see a band in this church basement, it's really weird and different. So. And ended up, and that's where kind of like, I'd say like the tipping point for R five was, what where it was like, now this is becoming like, super serious. Like it's an actual, like company or we're selling online tickets. It's no longer a hobby or I'm no longer paying like, one hundred forty five, four hundred, five hundred dollars a month in rent and just getting by here and there. Um, when the church reopened, that's where, things then suddenly became like, way serious. Dealing with like bigger bands, having the opportunity to do shows. In bigger venues like the Trocadero is reaching out like, if you guys ever want to do a show here and mm-hmm. so that's where things that kind of it's about seven eight years later from when I first started doing shows that's when things so what year is that about then that's like 2003 okay right. so it's about 10 years ago right now I don't want to know your private BI business yeah. but when you begin to transition into like this is now going to be your job like how do you figure it is going to work in terms of how you would be paid so right around Right around 2003, maybe even a little bit earlier, 2002, I, I discovered what's called promoter profit. All right, it's not even necessarily discovered, but I was just like, oh, maybe I should start doing this. Where it's a complicated, weird math formula that makes sense to no one except for music industry people. But it's where it's basically you're allowed to take certain money from the show if and only if it does well. Um, so then right around there, I was like, oh, I can start 
taking promoter profit, you know, and then and started doing that. And at the time, um, prior to this, like everyone was just volunteering, helping. All the money went to the bands. That's when I was like, oh, you know, what? I'm gonna start paying the show people too. And it doesn't necessarily come out of that promoter profit. It's a what they call show expense. Mm -hmm. So like when I would submit an offer to the band, I'd be like, hey, I want to pay my friends 50 bucks, three guys 50 bucks that help out with the show. And they're like, cool. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow. Like, you can make money off shows, pay your friends, everyone's much more happy. Um, and yeah, so it started transitioning right around there, like 10 years ago. Right. So in, it, so many years later now, it seems like you've branched off into a couple different venues. Uh, mm -hmm. So could you just kind of explain like what venues and why yeah. and how that came to be? So I guess then probably after a couple of years of like being, uh, of doing shows at the church and being really busy at the church, um, the two guys from Four Corners Management, which is a local company here in Philadelphia, and they um, at the time were doing bars, like nothing but bars and restaurants. Um, and they just approached me, you know, basically like, hey, it's pretty crazy that all these people are coming to this church basement to go see a show. What if we provided you your own space that you could run and, and, and deal with, um, where you could have people of all ages, and like and there'd be a bar in the back and basically like a more quote unquote like legitimate venue. Mm -hmm. Like what if, if we gave you a legitimate venue and made you a partner, would you be interested in pursuing that idea? And I was like, Yeah, definitely. Um, so it took it took a few years and it was really casual at first, like, cool, we'll think of something and then maybe a year later, they're like, Hey, you wanna check out this building we just saw or you know, and just slowly progressed to the point where we were then looking at buildings every few weeks. Uh, found a building in Fishtown, and we were ready to go, but the neighborhood disapproved it. It was at uh, Frankfurt and Gerard and Frankfurt, Frankfurt and Gerard, right by the L stop. Right. Um, the neighbors were complaining it was going to be like too, could, too loud. It was going to be too loud at Frankfurt. That and is Gerard. such a fucking dump in that area. Yeah. How could anybody well, have the an build, issue with The building now is a dollar store. Um, <laughs> so much better and classier <laughs> for the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and then uh, eventually we took a look at. Um, what was the spaghetti warehouse on Spring Garden Street. And it's this massive, huge building, like, totally mind-boggling, um, where we're basically told, like, hey, spaghetti warehouse is closing soon. Their, their business is dying. What about this for your venue? And it's a you know, big, grand, swooping, dramatic yeah, yeah, yeah. architecture. And we're like, fuck, like, holy shit, this is amazing. Now, what was it before the spaghetti warehouse? It was, uh, it initially started out as a, a luggage transfer system or station where if you had large luggage that you needed to ship to like a different city on the Union Rail Line or Railroad, um, you'd put whatever you need, like a huge couch or whatever it was, put it on the train, it would come down, someone would pick it up from the train station and then store it in, in this Union transfer, which was the luggage transfer. So then you would come pick up your couch or your bags or your Elephant. boxes or, yeah, exactly, whatever it was. So it was that, then it became a bank, a farmer's market, a car repair shop, a roller disco that did hip hop shows where oh, Public shit. Enemy played. <laughs> wow. um, then it became the Spaghetti Warehouse, yeah. which is the best, <laughs> no. So, but this is humongous space and we're kind of um, intimidated by it. And we're like, oh man, like we want to open up a venue that helped 500 people, but this space is way bigger. Um, and at that point, uh, myself and the guys from Four Corners had, were just, had a, a, uh, a relationship mostly just talking with 
company Bowery Presents in New York City. They're an independent concert group that doing tons of shows in New York, a lot of the same shows that I was doing in uh, Philly at the church. So we called them up and like, hey guys, we have this like amazing space, but it's really big. Do you want to come down and, and see what you think? And they come down and they're like, what the fuck, this, this could be great. So we start working on ideas and talking and then eventually the three of us decide like, all right, we're going to do it. We have this big footprint. We can make a really nice, comfortable venue, have a lobby, have really nice backstages. There's a parking lot for the bands. Um, someone, I'm not sure who, comes up with the idea that we can have a stage that moves forward and back and it cuts the room in half so you can still do shows for three or 400 people and it feels intimate and nice, mm -hmm. but then you can move the stage all the way back and it holds 1,200 people um, and just kind of go from there. And um, that took about a little, I'd say from like the idea of like we're going to do it till it opened, it was about a year and a half or so. Now did you have to put money in on kind of kidding this place out. Yeah, yeah, so I didn't get, yeah, so we, so I didn't get anything. For that, like, everyone had to put money into it, where it was, it was a lot of money to, you know, tear out the build. Basically, we tore everything out. We left the frame. Uh, then we built some walls in there. Had to actually uh, remove all the structural supports because mm -hmm. they are in the middle, which would block uh, concert viewers, like, yeah. showgoers, like, view of the stage. So we had to have the building re-supported, um, which is super expensive. We had to bring in this, all the steel to have... You know, all this crazy stuff. Build a balcony, got a crazy sound system, um, took out loans. You know, did all the normal business things. And this was the first time that it was like a this was like a quote unquote business like transactions where I was like all of a sudden in the real world with like real money, leases, signing documents. Because prior to this was just me, mostly myself, and then my like idiot friends, and we're all just like, ah, I'm sorry to charge me. Like, who cares? But then suddenly things became like way more obviously serious. Which, and this was when Union Transfer opened 2011. So this was probably around like 2009, 2010. These conversations were going on. And then that's sort of like the next leap for our now, five. Were you, were you scared through this process? I mean, you're getting ulcers because you're putting out all this money. Or... I, I wasn't, I wasn't, like in a cocky way, I wasn't scared. I was like, yo, if this, if this place ends up working out, it will do great and everyone will be happy. And have the relationship with tons of bands that have been playing the church and everywhere else for years. Bowery has a really good reputation in New York amongst like band, folk, you know, everyone. So it, it seemed on paper like this could do really well. And at the time in Philadelphia, there wasn't many slash any sort of 500, 600 capacity, you call them legit venues. Um, so, you know, it was just, really wasn't scared, it was, it was more excited, like, I can't wait for this place to open. Um, and at the time, I was like, oh man, this is gonna be great, it's gonna finally transition, it would be like, again, like the next step, where it's like transitioning out from the basement of this church, and into a place that we could control. And the thing I was like, it sounds ridiculous, but the thing I was most excited about was like not having to deal with all the other church groups, where every time we did a show at the church, we had to build the PA from scratch, it takes four people, it's like real heavy equipment, loading it, like setting it up, let the show happen, and then breaking it all down, putting it away in the closet. The idea of union transfer, you just like come into the room and like press on, and then you're yeah, like, all right, yeah, exactly, you're like, that was like so super exciting, like mind blowing to me. And it's been successful. Yeah, it's been, yeah, yeah so yeah. definitely, it's been, it's been two years almost to the day, um, been super successful, like in our first year, you know, we won like best venue in Philadelphia from a bunch of like local magazines and then Rolling Stone profile like the top 
15 or 20 rooms in America and we were in there and it's yeah, yeah. so it's like really cool to get all that uh, attention and, and sort of yeah and in a really short time yeah, yeah in yeah, two yeah. years yeah exactly where it's like boom and then you've opened other venues as yeah, well yeah so right? then through that um, there's a room that just opened three weeks ago ago called Boot and Saddle which is an old country western bar that was um, abandoned in 1995 where it was primarily set up for bunch of guys who worked at the Philadelphia Naval Yard in South Philadelphia. A lot of them, the iron workers were coming up from the south and they um, didn't really have anywhere to go or they felt uncomfortable hanging out in Philadelphia. So some guy was like, I know I'm going to open up Country Western Bar and these guys from the south are going to love it. And they totally did. Super popular until the Naval Yard um, started scaling back and eventually closed where then all the folks who were working for the Navy um, started leaving Philadelphia. So all these guys from the south and the Midwest were leaving. Suddenly the country bar in South Philadelphia doesn't seem such like a good idea. Uh-huh. Uh, they try a bunch of different things, they don't work. Uh, so th- the venue closes in 1995 and it was shuttered ever since. Well, you, uh, you had mentioned to me when we were talking yeah. that it was briefly... Oh yeah, so, yeah, so bring it back to the punk thing. And I just learned about this reading someone else's article about it. Um, but I guess right around that time when all the folks from the South were leaving and the Midwest, uh, the bar was like, shit, what do we do? We have to get some people in here. So they started, I don't know who they reached out to. I'm not sure who organized the shows, but um, they reached out to the punks. And they're like, hey, guys, you want to use our venue? And the Dead Milkman ended up building a stage. Like, there's all these crazy shows headed up. And then the first band that played there was, with this new stage, was Lime Cell. Like a pretty rotund, large. <laughs> you could say fat. <laughs> you <laughs> could say it. Uh, but I love them, and uh, yeah. But the line cell dude's super fat. They get on stage and apparently <laughs> smash through the stage. And there's still stories like at this time there's like weird like strippers on the bar. It sounded like a totally like amazing cool place to go to in 1995 or whenever. Like 1991. It, back. Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like super sketchy and crazy. But um, now, um, so we spent the last year or so rehabbing this place. Uh, made it kind of fancy um, where we repurposed tin from the ceilings, put it on the wall, restored all the original weird country art, like cowboys and Indians uh-huh. and like all sorts of weird, crazy signs. The amount of kitsch and like shit they did to sell it as a country bar was like totally crazy. Um, put a really nice uh, PA in the room as a good stage and made it into a 150 capacity um, bar. It's 21 and up and only, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, and that just opened two weeks ago, and it seems to be doing really well. So bands will be playing there as well. Yep, yeah, so we have, like, 20 shows coming up in October and 20 shows in November. And it's the same partnership as Union Transfer, where it's myself, the guys from Four Corners, and then Barry Presents. And then um, then there's a couple, there's two other places that I got involved with that are, like, just, you know, bars, beer gardens, stuff like that, which was through the Four Corners guys. They are opening up these these new places and then you're like hey we work well together um and we would like to have you involved with programming booking um whatever ideas you have in these other spaces and one's a beer garden along the delaware river uh called called? morgan's pier and then another one which was an old south philly strip club which is now more of like a dj club kind of oriented place and that's called the dolphin which is just a few blocks south of boot and saddle on broad street Mm -hmm. So now you become kind of like the punk Steven Star. Yeah, yeah. It's starting to turn into that, and it's interesting. I don't know. But I think with with these places, like whole, 
not necessarily problems, but then it, it moves things away from the from shows, and you're worrying about lots of other stuff. And like very recently, I'm s sort of thinking like may maybe in another place, but then, and then then that's kind of it. Like enough, and four or five places will be more than enough for anyone. Right, Steven Starr never said that. I know exactly. That's what. And he started out as a concert promoter. Yeah, so yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. He actually got bought out by Electro Factory Concerts, and then. Uh, so I guess we'll we'll kind of wind it up, but. Um, in, in moving now into all these different venues and doing these kind of really big projects, you know, mm -hmm. much much larger than tiny little DIY punk shows, yeah. do you feel that like the ethos of punk still kind of moves through you, and, and is it present, or do you want it to be present in these these other projects? Def I'd say definitely the the punk ethos definitely exists, but then with union transfer when we're doing. Like we book, it's not just like indie rock or punk or whatever, like alternative weird underground music. It's a lot of mainstream music. It's a lot of like um, uh, music that I don't personally listen to, but I book. Um, so we'd like to, um, like the staff from those places are, are a lot of people I've grew up with that were from the Stalag era and we treat bands super fairly and nice. And when it's, like a punk show, we know exactly what we're doing. We're like, oh, it's a punk show. We, we know when we had uh, Cox Bar come in, we're like, boom, we know exactly how to handle this and handle the bands, and everyone's happy. Um, but you know, it's. I still think that Union Transfer still is like independent. It's cool. It's, but it's also not necessarily I'd say like DIY. Like, you know, there's there's two larger companies involved. Although, granted, they're independent. Um, it's pretty far removed from like a punk space and I still love punk spaces and support them and uh, a bunch of people that, that work with us or R5 still do those shows but I don't think it's the most punk thing I think it's super independent and important and it's really cool and really nice and it exists for something different besides you know like the more like going back to like 1995 when I first went to that dirty scary warehouse like this is pretty far removed yeah, when there's yeah. like going to rooms like grand chandeliers and stuff but I think that again like the ethos where we wanted to you know for instance a lot of the venues of the size in town have like a box office charge which is where if you buy a ticket at the box office you have to pay a fee for that so it's like if you go buy a slice of pizza you're like Oh, it's three bucks, and the guy's like, "Yeah, that's two dollars for me to serve it to you." Like, <laughs> yeah. so that so we're like, "No, fuck that!" Like, we don't want to charge a fee at the box office, or lots of venues charge four or five dollars if you use a credit card, like per ticket. We're like, that sucks. No, no credit card fees. We try to have our online ticketing fees to be like the lowest in the city. So there's some things that we still like to, or have our drink prices a lot lower than the other venues. So there's things like that where, and they're not necessarily, not necessarily all financial, but just try to do some things that are like, this is the right thing to do, this is this is cool, like let's not, you know, you don't have to fuck people over, yeah, like yeah. let's let's be cool, and in the long run they'll keep coming, so. Yeah, I mean I know from like going to shows, like, you know, I don't just listen to, to hardcore music yeah. by any stretch, so when I'd want to see bands that would play places like say The Truck or Electric Factory or TLA, I'd often feel really uncomfortable in those places because I'd be made to feel uncomfortable by the staff, and I felt like there was a big difference between me coming in to see the show and the people running the show, and I think that like what you talk about here is kind of like if I wanted to see these types of bands, this is the, the sort of environment that I want to be in because there's like there's some kind of understanding or sensitivity. Yeah, you know, no, it's, it's rather a, than being like just pushed in and you know poked and prodded. Yeah. And, and like that's the one thing like, we're fortunate. Like everyone that kind of was involved from this the venue from day one kind of gets it and like understands like hey we're not like this isn't like the guys are like oh fucking another band like whatever like everyone's like 
really, really friendly, kind of, again, and, like, our sound guy comes from Starlog 13, our general manager, Tony, um, she's been going to shows forever. I met her, like, around Starlog 13. So it's all people that, okay, kind of, our security guard is, who goes more shows, Wes Smith, goes to more shows than any other human being ever, just, like, sees probably, like, 500 bands a year, no exaggeration, or 500 shows a year. Go, like, he gets it, he understands it. So it is... It's definitely like we're heavy-handed on like let's let it be the cool venue like let's just be chill let's let's you know yeah I think that comes through really well oh, that's um, good to hear <laughs> uh, I guess one more question this is something I kind of pose to to some of the younger people uh, who talking to people who grew up with R five shows so based upon their age when they came into the scene they were pretty much going to your shows almost exclusively because they were the main shows in Philadelphia and the thing was like these are shows that were well run. There weren't thugs uh, as security kind of like, you know, grappling with you as you come in, that the shows were in a safe environment, easy to get to. So they were kind of like the ideal shows that people could attend as, as young people. Um, and it was one of few venues even in the country that, that could boast something like that. Um, so my concern and my question was to these younger people, were they able to kind of absorb the ethos of DIY, of doing their own shows, when they had pretty much the perfect situation available to them do these does a generation of younger people who came into these shows kind of miss the, doing it, yeah doing it doing themselves, themselves. Yeah, 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 so, yeah so I have lots of like so when I first started doing shows at Stalag and the church or church is even probably a better example when I first started doing shows at the church there was probably like 12 other people doing shows there and it was like Robbie Redcheeks was the hardcore guy Mike Supermodel was the pop punk guy I was the ska guy uh, Cabbage Collector was like the more like punky kind of emo weird guy. Uh, Don DeVore was Ink and Dagger weird, and Sean McCabe weird like indie rock guy. So there's all these different groups using the church, and there's tons of different promoters and people involved. Um, and that that was really cool to have a bunch of different groups and people doing it, and everyone was basically like, oh, this is this isn't present, so I'm going to do it myself. Um, then as R5, I think it was almost perfect timing because then those guys were a little bit older than me and as time went along, they kind of dropped out and then people would be like, oh, well, you know, R5's doing shows at the church so they can absorb this, the hardcore shows and the, the emo shows and the, you know, whatever else. Um, so then it all of a sudden became a point where like, we were doing like the majority of shows in Philadelphia and we were doing a good job, but um, I noticed at the time, like, I almost felt bad and guilty. I was like, other people should be doing this because if it just becomes us, then it does, things start to get weird, and then we even start to lose focus where we end up, we're just, I was more afraid that we were going to end up be, being, like, one of those people, like, oh, fucking, oh, another show, great. Like, yeah. uh, um, and now, looking, like, this was, again, like, this is around, like, 2003, 2004, 10 years later now, I'm like, holy shit, like, we kind of dominated these shows and we desperately need other people to be doing shows and that's where like one thing I think is that the, the church sort of became this like ideal amazing DIY space or whatever and it I just counted the other a few weeks ago and it was like almost we individually did like 1500 shows there wow. which is like crazy but then it's sort of like it's just one church basement in Philadelphia and then everyone suddenly became like oh well like they don't know just the church is the only place like you can play where like other bands and kids could realize like you go into a phone book and you just like church like hey can I do a show in your church or yeah, like, yeah. or VFW it, yeah or, or anywhere or like a weird art, art house or a gallery and there's people that are still it's 
definitely do smaller shows. And I'm not sure if it's our, our fault because then bands would want, like, oh, we'll do with the guys that have the, mo mo the most experience. But now, like, I, I wish that, like, someone was kind of, like, doing other events for sure and, like, using other spaces. And there's a ton of smaller spaces, but I wish that someone would, like, find a cool church hall or gallery or warehouse or something and start doing, like, 400, 500-person type shows and that it would be really cool. And, like, we, or at least I can say, like, I personally want that. And I think some people have the idea that it's, like, Oh, Monopoly monster! I'm gonna do yeah. all the shows ever, which is the furthest thing from the. And I'm like, man, no, like, I definitely want people to start like doing their own shows, because and this is happening in 2014, where the amount of shows that R5 books, which is not Union Transfer, Boot and Saddle, but just R5, which is shows at the church and Johnny Brenda's and a couple other places, um, work or at least, well, yeah, actually, we we're cutting back on greatly cutting back on the number of shows we do because it's getting too much. Like this year, with uh, Boot and Saddle, Union Transfer, and then our own shows, it's like 450 shows or something like that. And it's getting hard to enjoy like booking 450. Eventually it just becomes like email, 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 and the last yeah. thing you ever want to do is like go to the show or listen to the bands or care about it. So with for the R5 stuff, we're going to cut back a lot and hopefully then maybe that'll leave some bands out that yeah well, I guess do. maybe when people become aware of that because I know that there are a lot of people doing basement shows like yeah. there's a really big basement show exactly yeah, yeah, city. Yeah. yeah and it seems like some of those people who are kind of like the more on their game or brighter or more committed to living in the city maybe would step in and want to take that to yeah, another yeah, exactly. level because like, they cut their teeth on you know 50 it, 75 people yeah exactly and that's how I ended up starting doing shows it was like a weird style and moving up from there and it would be great to have someone else doing shows whether even at the church or some other again some other space but it, I think it would be very helpful for Philadelphia to, to kind of have like another I almost think that people are kind of tired of the first Unitarian church and that there's like ugh the church. <laughs> where like 10 years ago everyone's like this is the best yeah, yeah. place I think or at least people my age we're like, we've been going to shows there for 10 years. We're like, I'm, I want to be in a hot, sweaty basement. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been in the shows for so like, goddamn long. Yeah, it's just like, mm. so it'd be cool for someone else to, to kind of, because I get, like, I'm myself and the people like work with me, like my friends, like we're getting, I'm going to say more out of touch, but like we're getting older. I'm 36 now. And like, there's the people who are like 18, 19, 20, I'm literally like double their age. So I don't know how, like, I don't hang out with them a lot. I don't, so I feel like there needs to be someone younger age to kind of take things over. Maybe it's time for you to buy a house. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, anyways, uh, it was great talking to you, and I think that you do fantastic work for the city of Philadelphia. So cool. it, was, it was great awesome. to, to hear how it all works. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Thanks.